Vivo qualitative data analysis software empowers researchers around the world to discover rich insights within their qualitative data. This podcast gives you unique insights into the methods, the processes, and the passions of researchers. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. I'm Stacey Penna, the InVivo Community Director. Today's podcast is with two researchers, Holly Bozeman, a Senior Study Director, and Valerie Oriana, a research associate from Westat, a U.S. organization that offers innovative professional services to help clients improve outcomes in health, education, social policy, and transportation. So welcome, Holly and Valerie. Thank you, Stacey. So I really enjoyed your presentation at the NVIVO Virtual Conference this year, and I wanted to share your research with others. So I thought, you know, invite you on the podcast and you can elaborate on your research study. So how did you both get involved with qualitative research? So maybe start with Holly. Sure. Wow. I'm trying to figure out how far back you want me to go. But originally, I became interested in qualitative research as a research assistant in my undergrad years at the University of Maryland. I worked for several postdocs and researchers in different labs as a research assistant. And then after graduation from undergrad, I decided to apply to a graduate program in one of those labs. So I continued on as a graduate assistant. Those were social science programs. I got my master's degree in human development in the education department. And most of our work was qualitative, conducting interviews and observations in classrooms with students at varying ages and grades and trying to wade through that information. Directly from graduate school, I ended up with an assistant position at Westat. And then Westat just afforded me with lots of different opportunities to hone my qualitative data collection skills through focus groups and observations and interviews and through surveys. Westside is a survey research company, but having mentors and opportunity for professional development over across my years at Westat has also just developed that skill and increased my interest. I'm still interested in it. It's something new every year and a new project brings new challenges. That's great. That's interesting. It's sort of neat how you started in academia and then moved into a different sector, but, mm-hmm. but still doing quality research. So that's great. And Valerie? Okay. And my background's very different. I learned qualitative research more on the job. My background was in education. I was an English major undergrad and got my master's in secondary education in English. I taught briefly before coming to Westat. I came to Westat back in 2008, and that's when I started becoming involved both in qualitative and quantitative research. So a lot of my skills were actually acquired through project work on the job. And I'm pretty sure I learned in vivo actually on project work with Holly about eight years ago or something like that. And since then, I've used in vivo on multiple projects for qualitative work. And I found it to be very helpful and enjoy it whenever I get to work on projects using it. Thank you very much. Thanks for sharing that. Can you give the background of the research study that you presented at the conference, Holly? Of course. So back in 2014, a technology company awarded Westat with a grant to conduct an evaluation of their new initiative to provide under-resourced schools with digital technology specifically to enhance teaching and learning within those schools. 
So the goal of the conference presentation was to describe how our evaluation methods since 2014 and our evaluation team was redesigned in the 2020 year uh, to account for how the program has grown and also to account for the challenges and the rethinking that we had to do as presented by the pandemic. And especially since schools were hit pretty hard or impacted significantly by COVID-19, we had to do a lot of rethinking for how to collect the data, our expectations and our study design. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And what was the purpose of the study? Right. So the original purpose of the study was to examine the impact of the program, specifically on teaching and learning within middle schools. Each year, we would collect both implementation data and outcome data from all the schools that are participating. And so with your methods, you had a mixed methods approach. And can you describe the data you collected for this? Sure. So the data, we did use a mixed methods approach with a variety of different points of contact over time and methods used. For instance, we had both teacher and student surveys. We conducted telephone interviews at the end of a school's first and fourth year of participation. We conducted site visits at the end of a school's second and third year of participation. And within those site visits, we would do interviews with the principal, interviews with the instructional coach, and then we would select three teachers from that school to conduct individual interviews with them. We would also conduct classroom observations. And at the end, we would develop a school-level summary for each school to get an understanding of the overall context of the program and how it's performing in that school. In addition, we also analyzed administrative data from the schools that included attendance data, disciplinary actions, and test performance data. Yeah, I was really impressed, like the amount of data and how long, like over the years that you collected Mm -hmm. it too, which was very impressive. So how did you work with your client on the study questions? Because you talked about how that was sort of collaborative because obviously it was a grant that Westat had received. So how does that typically happen? Right. So this is a very typical program evaluation. It was a competitive process. We submitted a proposal to do the work. Our proposal was strong enough to be funded. And then after that, it becomes a collaborative activity with the client and We would work with them to hone the evaluation plan and to hone the evaluation questions. Every year we revisit the questions in the evaluation plan to see what's working, what's not working, and to adjust if need be. But it's always hand in hand with the client. I'm just curious, are there big adjustments or it just depends year to year? No, we don't have big adjustments. We are going into our seventh cohort this year. So we're preparing for our spring data collection. Nuances are, we have to take into account maybe new professional development offerings that the program is providing. So we have to use the new language in our protocol and account for those new activities. This year, we also are including in high school. So we have to adjust our language for that high school population. And then, of course, last year, we definitely had to redesign all of the protocols to include both pre-COVID and during COVID questions to capture that perspective. Did you decide to do a high school because you already have so much data from middle schools and obviously the students are going up to the high school or not? That was a client decision. Yes, okay. they wanted to to see how their program worked at a high yeah. school level. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks. So. Over time, more schools enrolled in the program, so you were able to collect more data. So why did that occur? 
the program initially started or the evaluation or the study of this program started with eight schools across the country. And that was cohort eight. Or, I'm sorry. No, it was cohort one, <laughs> very first cohort. <laughs> so the new cohorts of schools were brought on each year. And currently, like I said, we are in the process of onboarding our cohort seven and getting our data collection instruments in order and preparing our staff to begin that data collection for cohort seven. So each data collection year adds on a new cohort. And even within the cohort, the number of schools participating has increased over the years. So it's just the function of the program offering necessary resources to schools that need to have them. And more schools want to participate. Therefore, they're naturally in our study. Oh, that's great. And I'm just curious because teachers talk and schools. So did schools hear about this program and that they wanted to be part of it or it was something that was offered to them over time? I think it's a combination, combination. of both. Now then, okay, mm-hmm. thanks. So how many people were on the research teams over the course of the study? The team started very small. It included four individuals, the PI, a co-PI, and two senior research associates. The four of them could handle the logistics and the analytical demands of the project when the project was small and there were only a few cohorts. But over time, it was clear that they needed additional support. So by spring of 2020, the evaluation or the research team expanded to 20 individuals. Oh, wow. So in the spring of 2020, you had to revamp data collection methods. So why did you need to do this and how did methods change? Well, simply, we were looking for a way to be more efficient and more systematic, right? So in previous years, a researcher on a team would be assigned as a liaison to a school district. That liaison would not only serve as the critical role of developing a relationship with the school district to better facilitate their participation, to ensure that they had all the information, that they were providing it on time, but that liaison or that researcher had to also collect the data and analyze the data for each school that involved writing these school-level summaries. And it was just time-intensive as the schools became more abundant over time So the summaries were an internal analytical tool used to identify cross-cutting insights and findings across the schools that are participating. But that activity, in order to do it really well, was just time-consuming. So last year, we prepared the collection of three cohorts of participating schools, which included 78 schools altogether. Mm -hmm. Our data collection and reporting period usually takes place between March and September every year. We had more schools, but no additional time. So we had to think creatively. We could not do the school level summaries for 78 schools within the timeframe that we had. So we decided to convert the unit of analysis from the individual school into the individual interview participant. And then we developed a more systematic coding-based analysis plan of each interview transcript, which involved the combination of structural coding, content coding, and emergent coding. And then we were anticipating collecting about 400 individual transcripts to analyze, therefore using something like InVivo to organize this information and involve everyone at different points of the um, data collection analysis stage was just more efficient for us. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It was interesting that you had to change your unit of analysis from the school to the individual. And did you find that helped or changed anything with the findings? It's interesting that in a way it provided confirmation to the context-based summaries that were created and how we looked across the summaries to get the overall themes across the schools. And then to see them play out on an individual interview level was great confirmation. But what it allowed us to do was provide the client with direct quotes from the individual interviewee. Because with the summaries, everything was filtered through a narrative, Right. right? But with the transcripts, we inundated the client with clear, illustrative examples of what these themes really look like within the schools. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you. And so you changed it and it wasn't, I know probably COVID-19 and that what was happening might have affected you, but that wasn't the main reason you changed things in the school. No. And it's good that we were on this track in the first place because we were already concerned about level of burden for team members and the time frame that we had to collect even more information than we have done in the past. So we were already on track for changing this process and making it a little bit more efficient. So with COVID-19, the pandemic shut down our plan to start data collection in March. We didn't really get into the schools until about May to start conducting interviews. So we lost a couple of months. But although we lost a couple of months, because the way that we restructured our analysis plan, and not just the analysis plan, the data collection plan, and had more systems in place to ensure that everything worked efficiently, we delivered our final report on time. And that's always the goal every year. Good. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So talking more about the analysis of your research, why and how did you expand the evaluation team? I think you talked a little bit about that, but can mm-hmm. you talk more about the roles you used with organizing the team? Because that seemed to be really important to expand it. Right. It was important. So as I mentioned, we had about 20 people on this team now coming from originally in 2004, only four individuals. And within those 20 individuals, we had 11 unique roles. So we had the principal investigator, the senior advisor. We also included in 2020, a senior operations director, a qualitative task lead. That's the role that I served in. Then we had our district liaisons and our interviewers. Those are consistent roles over the span of this study. And then since we had InVivo, we needed an InVivo manager, which Valerie served in that role, and then several InVivo analysts. We also, on the operations logistics side, needed a scheduling manager. We had almost 400 individual points of contact. So we needed someone to take care of that that was not also involved in actually conducting the interviews. Mm -hmm. So having one person oversee all of that was very helpful, but that individual also had a small team of two schedulers to help her. It's a massive process. And then we also added in a transcript coordinator. This is an individual, since all of our interviews were being conducted on a rolling basis, the transcripts were coming in on a rolling basis and the transcripts needed to come in and then go back to the interviewer seamlessly. So we need to have one person send out the audios file to the transcript company, receive the final transcript back, 
send it to the appropriate person so they can begin their analysis process. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite amazing. I can see why you'd need the schedulers for that many people. Yeah. Cause then you could concentrate on the analysis or the work or anyone on your team involved with that. So that makes sense. Yeah. Definitely. Yes. It freed me up to have one hat on. I did not have to collect the data at the same time. What I did was ensure the quality of the qualitative data that was coming in. It played an oversight role. Thank you for explaining that. We'll take a short break from the podcast. Weststat is a recognized leader in adopting new tools and technologies to improve the research process. Although qualitative research does not always get top billing in a statistically orientated business, Weststat staff have been using Envivo, a qualitative data analysis software, for 15 plus years to provide their clients with fast, precise analysis of large amounts of text-based data and is at the forefront of using technology to code and analyze qualitative data. There were four stages for your process. Can you describe these and how did this help with the study? And I think Valerie's going to talk about that. Okay. Yeah, we had four main stages of the data collection and analysis process for this project. And they were data preparation, data collection and cleaning, preliminary data analysis, and quality control analysis. So the first stage was the preparation stage. And during this stage, we developed and finalized interview protocols for each of the cohorts and participant types based on knowledge and experience from the previous years. And we conducted a team training on these protocols. Shortly after the training, however, the onset and impact of COVID-19 revisions were necessitated to the protocols so that we could capture pandemic-related reflections and impacts. We then revised the protocols to include new questions and then conducted a second team training. So that was the preparation process. Then the next stage was data collection and cleaning. During this stage, we recruited participants and we scheduled and conducted telephone interviews with the principals, teachers, and coaches. The interviewers audio recorded these interviews and the recordings were sent to the transcription service to be transcribed. Once we received them back, the interviewers reviewed the ones that they had conducted for accuracy, and then they conducted structural coding based on the interview categories. Then the third stage was the preliminary data analysis. So in this stage, interviewers conducted the content coding of their transcripts of a Word document, and they sent their coded document to the analysis team for review. Then I imported these reviewed templates into Envivo because we had the structural coding already. It allowed for the quick auto-coding of them on a rolling basis as they were coming in. Based on the preliminary data, the analysis team revised the code book as needed and then disseminated that to the interview team. And so the review and revision of the structural and the content coding process took place over several rounds. So we had saturation and uniformity across. So how many coders did you have in total? We had 12. They were including the interviewers themselves. Mm -hmm. Not an interviewer myself. I just kind of oversaw and managed the Vivo database to make sure we kept it clean and, you know, as people were. Because you were working with a team. So did each coder have their own Vivo project that they worked on? No. They set up their templates with the structural coding and then I received those. I did the uploading of them and some preliminary coding. Sorry, I wanted to make it clear that this was a mixed mode coding team, meaning that some people coded in a Word document while others coded in Envivo. Mm-hmm. So the first stage of coding only took place in a template that we structured in Microsoft Word. 
and that had the heading levels formatted so that when it was included or uploaded into Envivo, it was easy to just autocode really quickly. But we wanted to make sure that the individual interviewers who had the first interaction with the interviewee were the ones to read the transcripts first and code the transcripts. So then after it was included in Envivo, we had another set of eyes look at them and they did a different type of coding. Okay, thank you. That's that's interesting. Yeah, because a lot of times that's a big challenge sometimes for teams, like you had a large team. So Mm -hmm. when you say the auto coding, just to clarify, it was auto coding by structure by the headings mm-hmm. in the Word document. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. But that does save a lot of time if you mm-hmm. set it up beforehand. So, all right. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Holly and Valerie, for clarifying that. And anything else, Valerie, did you want to add? Well, just the last stage of the process, we had the data quality control and analysis. And that's where emergent coding took place with the new COVID-19 specific questions. Then our team ran matrix queries in vivo by cohort and respondent type and looked at frequencies of those. We identified nodes that had large percentages of responses coded to other kind of placeholders before we did some more emergent coding from those. So responses that were coded to other were reviewed to see if they could be upcoded to existing nodes or if we needed to create the new nodes. Then we conducted additional emergent coding within themes. And then we analyzed comparisons within and across cohorts, districts, and participants to identify trends. And then we aligned these findings with the research questions for presentation in the final report. Great. Thank you. In your presentation, you had really good diagrams of what you Mm -hmm. described. So maybe we can talk about this after, but a way to put the diagrams or the PowerPoint or something, which would be part of the description of the podcast. So Mm -hmm. people could see that's up to you, but sometimes that's a nice visual because it was really clear to me. It's Mm -hmm. nice to hear too, but it was a nice visual to see how you guys organize things. Well, then the What's That Graphics Department thanks you for your the compliment. <laughs> well, that's another perk of working with yes, a with a large like company. <laughs> they spent some time conceptualizing this presentation. I think they did a really good job. No, they did. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, we'll see mm-hmm. if we can get permission to do that because I think that <laughs> would be helpful for people too. So, for your results of the study, what were some of the challenges you faced with the study, Valerie? Okay, well, there were several challenges. We mentioned already the number of qualitative analysts we had. So some of these challenges were anticipated. And then obviously one big one was unforeseen with the COVID-19. So we had a number of analysts that did not have Amoeba software. And so we did have like the mixed modes, as Holly was saying, where some were coding on Word. There were five of us that were actually using Envivo. Two of them were fairly new Envivo coders. So I worked with them a lot individually to work with them. And since historically, when we were training someone on Envivo, it would be in person, face-to-face, running back and forth to each other's offices, looking at the same screens together. It was kind of a new challenge, was learning how to train people in a remote format. People have preferences. You know, there's one, we would do Skype video where one of us would be doing it and we'd kind of pass taking turns do it. There's another one who preferred phone calls and I would make a copy of the project so that we could both be going into a project that looked the same. And so those were definitely challenges. There were a number of different respondent types and cohorts. And so, and then new questions as well that had been added to those as a result of COVID and needing to get that information. So those were some of the challenges made pre-coding because of 
the addition of the new questions. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And how do you present your findings to your client typically? Well, the client receives a cohort-specific final report every year. These reports detail findings relating to program impacts broadly and then in specific areas such as the impacts relating to specifically the students and then impacts relating to instructional practices that the teachers were using. Because this is your eighth cohort, right, starting? It's seventh. 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 Cohort. Seventh. Mm-hmm. So do you anticipate how many cohorts the client might want to do? No, no, I don't know that information. If there were my preference, I would continue doing this because I feel like every year there's a nuance, something new, but that's up to the client. Right. Yeah. Well, obviously you're doing a good job because you've been doing it for quite some years, so that's good. So can you share any of the high level findings from the project? I know you have to be careful because of privacy. Right. We are a third party researcher. And in that role, we do not have the rights to the final product that we have. And the report is the product. Even the transcripts are the product of the client. Everything involved in the study is owned by the client. So we do have to be very careful about what we share about their product. And if we do in other program evaluations with other clients, sometimes findings can be shared in collaboration with a client. It's not that case for today. Mm -hmm. However, I can say that this program that the client has funded and developed, I would say that teachers felt and principals and coaches did feel as if they were well prepared to make this smooth transition from in-person instruction to a completely remote environment in March of 2020. Everyone had to go to a completely remote instructional format, and they already had a heads up on how to use these devices and the apps and in ways to integrate technology into their lessons. Oh, that's great. So that was definitely a positive right from (laughs) that. Yeah, that's great. You know, former teacher, I have friends that are teachers still and going from that transition when Mm -hmm. they didn't have everything set up, obviously was quite challenging for them and for everyone right now, right? (laughs) Oh, indeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thank you. So in conclusion, what's one piece of advice would you give researchers working on a qualitative project with a large team? Sure. I've been thinking about that. It's something that I think about every year. What have we learned and how can we improve on our process? And I would say that a well-developed management system is as important as a well-conceived study design and a well-conceived analysis plan. And for instance, just having an organizational chart that everyone on the team has access to is helpful and having those roles on the chart well-defined really helps the functioning of the machine, (laughs) the process every year. This is a long-term study and we would always have to revisit this organizational chart every year to make sure that each of the roles are doing what they're supposed to be doing and if they need to be revised or altered or maybe there is a hole in the chart that there is something that occurred over the year that we realize that we need to create a new role for. I think that is very important to do, especially for these long-term projects that collect a lot of information over time. Valerie? It's pretty basic, but I think communication, I mean, the organization and having people that were specialized in certain areas, I think definitely helped a ton. I was in an interviewer. I specifically focused on the Envivo database and then helping train less experienced Envivo users. I did the merging and splitting. 
of in vivo files, that sort of thing. And then just constant communication and we're making a list of some of the best practices. We learned some things from merging or people who are newer to in vivo would kind of add their initials, you know, when they made something and then it would create new notes. So things like that, you know, maybe just having kind of a running list of best practices to pass on to those newer users. That makes sense. So definitely best practices and and communication, like you said, and Holly with organizing, right? Making sure Mm -hmm. that that flow chart you're describing makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense. Sometimes even with small projects, that's helpful Mm -hmm. (laughs) too. Yes, (laughs) definitely. So thank you so much for joining me today for the podcast episode. I really enjoyed learning more about your research project today and Good luck with your next cohort. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Stacey. And yeah, we're getting ready and it's going to be a big one. (laughs) More schools, more data collection, more analysis. Thank you for joining us for Between the Data. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more about InVivo podcasts and community events, please visit go.invivobyqsr.com slash community or email me, Stacey Penna, at s dot penna p-e-n-n-a at qsrinternational.com